Um, hey, I want to take a moment to, uh, to thank uh, uh, Nick Van Horn and uh, uh, Buddy Bond for uh, covering the pulpit the last couple of weeks. Um, my family and I got to go on a little vacation to the Upper Peninsula of, uh, of Michigan. And uh, you know, it's kind of interesting since moving to Ohio uh, five years ago that I haven't heard a whole lot of positive things from Ohioans about Michigan. <laughs> I don't know there's some sort of rivalry or something that goes on. I don't know, does, does Ohio have um, sports teams? Okay. I... All right, all right. Anyway, um, Michigan was lovely. It, it really was. Um, but, you know, the thing about vacations, like I, I had uh, lots of expectations, like really high expectations for vacation. And I was really hoping, you know, to get away from, uh, you know, from, from some, some stress and to go and to rest and to re- relax and to rejuvenate and to, um, you know, just, uh, just find that peace and that shalom sort of experience and to come back um, just ready to, to, to re-engage. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is, is though we saw lots of cool stuff. Like I saw Lake Michigan and Lake Huron and Lake Superior. It was like, it was beautiful. Um, I got to see picture rocks, and we got to see uh, lighthouses, and I got to see northern lights for the first time. Um, I think there's a, maybe a picture that's not very good. <laughs> but the reality is the northern lights are kind of like that. Like, with your naked eye, they're just sort of like, I think I see some blurriness. But then with, you take a picture with your camera, you're like, oh, wow, like, that's kind of amazing. Um, so it, in a way, that's a little disappointing because like, if you've never seen the Northern Lights and you see pictures in a book, you're like, wow, like, there's like rainbows that are like violent. You know? like, I want to go see that. And then you see them, you're like, huh, it's kind of cloudy. You know? <laughs> uh, but, but maybe I didn't get the full effect. Maybe I have to go further north. I don't know. But um, the, the thing about vacation is, is like, uh, you know, we, I took the whole family. My parents went. My in-laws went. It was good time with, with family together. Um, we got to see really cool stuff, uh, but it was pretty tiring. And the, the driving that's involved in the setting up of camp, and, and I don't know, parents, if you experienced this, but my kids, they weren't quite as grateful for stuff that I thought that they should be. And um, there, there was also, like, um, Lake Superior is known for agate hunting. These little volcanic rocks that people, like, search for, you know? And um, if I had a dollar for every rock I examined from my kids, I would be a very rich man, because like over and over again, is this an agate, is this an agate, is this an agate, is this? And I said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not a geologist. And, um, and so uh, it, it, it was tiring, and, uh, and I expected to come back and feel, you know, uh, you know a little bit more refreshed than, than I actually felt. And um, the good news is that when we came back, we didn't find an animal uh, infiltration into our house like we found before. Uh, we didn't have water in the basement, so that was nice. But I did come back, and I had a nice little note from Greene County letting me know that my property taxes have gone up, so more taxes. That's fantastic. And uh, some, some problems here, like uh, the, we had a refrigerator break and, and freeze a bunch of our communion elements that we needed for last Sunday, and we got that figured out. And then if you were here for the second gathering last week and it was your first time, you didn't get greeted last week. We didn't have any greeters the second gathering because of sickness or whatever. And so there's all this kind of stuff going on, and uh, it, was, it was, you know, uh, I was like, well, I'm back in it. Here we go. Um, but, but there was this expectation for me that that vacation would do for me really what only probably heaven can do, you know? And, uh, and, and so there's that disappointment with that, but with, with that disappointment, there's opportunity for grace to recognize that God has put something inside of me that needs to be fulfilled, and if he put that there, that means he can fulfill it. 
And so I wait for the day when he does. And so there's hope there. And now, with a passage that we're gonna be in this morning, 2 Samuel 19, we see David, he doesn't come back from vacation, he comes back from exile. Uh, but there is something about this return that you, would make you think um, things should get better than the way they are. There's something about this return that you would make you, make you think that, that, that the way things were have, have changed and things are going to get better. And what we're going to see in, in the passage that uh, instead of rejoicing, um, there's mourning. Instead of victory, it, it feels like defeat. Uh, shame is experienced instead of honor. Love looks like hate, and hate looks like love. And uh, as we walk through this passage together, if you've been following along uh, with, with this series, ask this question, what's changed? Especially since 2 Samuel 10. It's in 2 Samuel 10, David, he's at the, the height of, of glory and power. Like, he's united the kingdom. He's conquered all of his enemies. Um, he, he's doing great things for, for his people. He's really, like, just the, the pinnacle of his, of his reign and rule. And then in chapter 11, he commits adultery and commits murder. And what has changed in that time? Um, uh, we've been going through chapters uh, 13 through 18, which is really about the rise and fall of King Absalom. If you remember that um, Samuel is taken as a whole, it's really a tale of three kings. First Samuel is the tale of, of uh, the rise and fall of King Saul. Second uh, Samuel 1 through 12 is the rise and fall of King David. But then 13 through 18 is the rise and fall of King Absalom. And what we saw is that Absalom, David's son, leads this insurrection against him. He steals the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. He recruits all the leadership of Israel. He has the army under his his power and control and he goes against his own father in order to kill him and supplant him and uh, it it, it doesn't work out. He goes into battle and he's caught up in a tree by his pride, figuratively, it's his hair literally, and he's dangling off the ground and he's discovered and Joab, uh, David's general, runs him through with three spears. They bring him down and heap stones over his dead corpse and you think, ah, it's over now, right? The insurrection is put down. David's gonna come back. We're gonna see in this chapter, he's gonna say once again, I am king over all Israel. And you think this is, this is great, uh, that this is a change. And yet what we're gonna discover is it's gonna be more of the same and, uh, and things are gonna be uh, just as bad, if not worse than they were before. So let's dive in. Second Samuel 19, beginning of verse one, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So David's army vastly outnumbered faces Absalom's army, but there's a victory. 20,000 men of Israel die, but there's a victory. 
and uh, David uh, has, has seen that his, his, the loyalty of his people, they fought for him, and there's a victory. And God, according to verse 19 of the previous chapter, God is the one who secures this victory. And there's reason for David to honor his men, and there's reason for David to honor God, but instead, he can't get past his own grief over this death of his son, Absalom. And he longs uh, for, for, for Absalom. He wishes he could trade places with Absalom. He can't get past his own grief here. Now, what, what's interesting is uh, Joab comes to him in the, in the midst of this, and Joab has just disobeyed him. Uh, David said in the presence of all of his military commanders before they went into battle, deal gently with my son Absalom for my sake. Deal gently with him. And instead, when Absalom's caught up in that tree, Joab murders him. He doesn't deal gent with him. He, he disobeys David. He murders him. Then he heaps stones upon his corpse. And so he comes into David, and David, instead of addressing this, he doesn't confront Joab. He doesn't say, I gave you an order, and you disobeyed it. I told you to deal gently. You murdered him. He doesn't confront him at all. In fact, he's, he's completely silent through the whole thing. And then Joab, we've seen his, his sort of state before. He, he's always doing what he wants to do. He really isn't ruled well, and now he's going to be put in a position where he's going to tell David what to do. He's going to be speaking with authority over, over David and, and really commanding him. And, uh, and essentially, he's, he's saying, you know, uh, by the Lord, like, if you don't get up off your face and go honor your men, your men are going to leave you. Get up. Go and honor the people that have honored you. Go recognize what they've done for you. And so David, he's going to move past his grief, but he's going to start politically maneuvering. Um, he, he gets up, he, he goes, he sits in the city gate of Mahanaim. Um, he doesn't give any speeches. He doesn't give any awards or medals. He doesn't um, give anybody any promotions. He's just there. He's just present with his people, but he's going to start politically maneuvering. Now, at the beginning of this book, um, David becomes king, but he has to reunite the kingdom after Saul and then Ishbosheth ruled. And he has to do a lot of work to reunite the king, kingdom. And so um, he defeats their enemies, and he blesses certain people, and he's wise, and he's generous, and he's benevolent, but he works really hard to unite the kingdom. Now he has to reunite the kingdom, but instead of being wise and generous and loving and kind towards his people, he's just going to become a politician. So he sits in the gate. We read verse 9. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So there's this dialogue between the leaders of the other tribes. And they say, <clears throat> well... We backed David, David conquered our enemies, but then we backed Absalom, and David left, and Absalom's dead. Now we need to bring David back. And this is a picture of just wishy-washy loyalty, isn't it? Like, well, they're on David's side, but then Absalom looks better, so they join him, and, well, he, that didn't work out very well, so we need David back, right? And it sort of seems kind of strange and odd behavior, but when you take a look back at the whole Old Testament, what do you see? You see a nation of Israel who was, who was saying, God, thank you for saving us. They honor him as God. They worship him. But then uh, they rebel and they, they go their own way and they worship other gods. And then a prophet comes along and says, you need to repent. And so they come back, oh, God, we're really, really sorry and, and forgive us and you're so great. And all of a sudden, they, they go away again. And this is a cycle over and over and over again through the nation's history. But I do that. That's a really good description of me. The reality is, is I, oh, God, you're so great. 
you're so great, uh, I, I love you, I want to serve you, and oh, shiny object. And run after that and, and pursue that, oh, that's going to help me, and that's going to save me, and that's what I'm going to put my trust and my faith in, and it doesn't work, and it lets me down, and the, the Holy Spirit convicts me, it's like, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, God, you're so good, you're, you're so wonderful. Oh, shiny object, like, just over and over again. There's a cycle within me and that, that wishy-washy loyalty that, that exists within me. Thank God for his grace. Well, David works to unite those wishy-washy people and loyalties. Verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So uh, the, the leaders of the other Isra- uh, Israelites' tribe, they reach out to David. They want him back. David doesn't respond. Instead, he sends messengers to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, who's been silent. And he says to them, why haven't you called for me to come back? Well, he essentially is shaming them, saying, the rest of Israel wants me back, but you're my own tribe. You're my own flesh and blood. Um, Why haven't you called for me to to come back? He's shaming them, but he's also doing something else. He's driving a wedge between the tribe of Judah and the rest of the tribes of Israel. He's unwisely driving a wedge between his own people. He's polarizing his own people. Um, Then, verse 13, say to Amasa, are you not bone? And my flesh. God, do so to me and more also if you're not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both of you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So um, David, uh, in order to secure Judah, uh, Judah, reaches out to Amasa. Um, Amasa is actually Joab's cousin. They're related, and they, they don't have a great relationship. Don't really know why. Um, but Amasa was also the guy that, that uh, Absalom chose to lead his army. Absalom, or I'm sorry, Amasa led the army against David's army. And here what David is doing is he's taking his enemy, and he's making him his commander in place of Joab. And if you noticed, uh, Joab said, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, if you don't get up off your face, David, and go and give honor to your men, he swears by the name of the Lord that, that the people will all leave him. And now David is swearing something similar, saying, if, if I don't make you king in Joab's place, then, like, you see what's happening here? is like, David never confronts Joab. He never calls him on disobeying him. Instead, he just takes his spot away and gives it to his enemy. Essentially what David is doing is he's giving away the honor of his men to someone who was his enemy. Do you see that? Um, but in doing that, he's playing the political game. He, he's doing that in order to, to, to have the hearts and minds of, of the people of Judah in order to follow him. And it works. Um, and then um, uh, what, what happens is as, as David, he crosses the Jordan, he's goes, going back into to Israel. Judah comes out to meet him, to bring him back into Jerusalem. Now, on the way back to Jerusalem, Jesus, or David is going to encounter the same people that he encountered when he went into exile, leaving Jerusalem. And the first is Shimei, or Shimei. And Shimei, the son of Gera, verse 16, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. 
And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the fort to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. <clears throat> and Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. Okay, so uh, we see Ziba. We'll put him aside. We'll come back to him in a second. But there's Shimei. When David left uh, Jerusalem to head into exile, as Absalom was marching on Jerusalem, he encounters Shimei, and Shimei comes out and he starts throwing rocks at David. And he starts yelling curses at David. And he actually, uh, he accuses David of the blood of Saul, of, of Ishbosheth, of Abner, people he didn't actually kill or have anything to do with their deaths. He's accusing of th- him of things he didn't do. But, but more than that, he's, he's calling him names. And the literal name that he calls him, he calls him basically a blood-stained fiend of hell. That's what Shimei says to David. You blood-stained fiend of hell. And he's cursing him. And at this moment, Abishai, one of David's guys, says, let me kill him. He's doing the wrong thing. And David says, no. I may not be guilty of what he's accusing me of, but I am guilty. He knows the the curse that he's bearing up under because of his sin with Bathsheba and and with Uriah. Like, he's feeling the weight of that, so he doesn't allow uh, Abishai to hurt. Shimei allows the curses to happen with the hope that God would turn this around for him. Well, Shimei realizes that things don't go so well. He thought Absalom was going to come out on top. David came out on top, and now he's worried for his life. What will the king do to me? So, very wisely, he brings a thousand people from the tribe of Benjamin with him to meet David, knowing that David might compromise in what he would do to Shimei if those Benjaminites can come over to his side and begin to follow him. It's a political mover, maneuver, and then we see this in verse uh, 19, what he says. Uh, and Shimei said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. You ever do this? Like, you act in a rebellious way towards God. Like, you know the truth of God. You know what he said to do, but you thumb your nose at it. You do what you want to do instead. And sometimes we do it out of anger, and sometimes we do it out of defiance. And yet, we realize what, who he is, and we realize what we've done, and we come back to him, and, 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 and the, the idea is that God, don't punish me for this. Like, don't hold this against me. Don't give me what I deserve. And God, by his grace, doesn't because of Jesus. But here's this attitude within, within Shimei, and, and it is basically, um, don't hurt me. I'm sorry, you know, that I think it's sort of one of those things where uh, you couldn't punish me more than I punish myself, you know? You ever, you ever try to do that or see your kids do that? And maybe sometimes they do, like punish themselves worse than you could punish. Anyway, that's Shimei, and, and David's gonna do something unlikely, and it's gonna tick off Abishai, who, is, uh, who wanted to kill uh, him in the first place. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered 21, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Um, what, what essentially is happening here is, is that loyalty of Abishai, Abishai is being treated uh, with hostility. David turns to him and says, you're acting like an enemy to me. You're acting like an adversary because you want to raise your hand against the guy who cursed me. 
but it's loyalty in Abishai. But that loyalty, it's being treated by hostility. However, the hostility of Abishai is being treated with goodwill, at least on the surface. Uh, David is, is telling uh, Shemit, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to pardon you. But this is a political move, maneuver because he wants those 1,000 men of the Benjaminites. However, you look at 1 Kings chapter 2, and David on his deathbed, when he's telling Sam, or Solomon what to do, he says, don't forget Shimei and what he did to me. And literally he says this, uh, bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Did David forgive Shimei? No, not at all. Uh, he's, he's going to hold that, that, that grudge um, until he, he dies. But this is a political maneuver. So he allows Shimei to live in the moment. Then we're introduced to, or reintroduced to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king, but my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you, for all of my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. If you weren't here for, for this, uh, David, when he was at the height of his, of his glory as a king, he looked around and he said, who can I bless? Um, in, in this culture and in this context, if, if you became king and there were still members of a, of a warring or an enemy household still alive, you would pursue them and kill them so that they wouldn't have the chance of, of coming back and trying to reclaim the throne from you. In this culture, you find out who, who the members of your, your, your enemy's household are and you go out and kill them. But instead of David saying, who are, are, is around from the house of Saul that I can kill? He says, who is around from the house of Paul, Saul that I can show the loving kindness of God to, that I can bless? He finds out about Mephibosheth who, uh, as, a, as a young boy, he was, was, was injured in his feet. And so he has this, this injury that prevents him from being able to walk. And, 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 and because of that, he's destitute. And so he... he, he he says to him, like, I'm going to take all of your, your grandfather's stuff, your, your inheritance, which you're supposed to have. I'm going to give it to you. And essentially what happened is a guy named Zeba, who was a servant of Saul, he, uh, he, when, when there was no apparent heir, he just claimed it for himself. He took all Saul's land and, and, and wealth and said, this is mine now. And now David's taking it away from him and giving it to Mephibosheth. And now Mephibosheth is, is also given a seat at David's table. And see, what this is is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel where, where, where God in Christ Jesus came to us and said, instead of who, my, who are my enemies, who, who will I show the loving kindness of God to? And Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. We who, who, who were enemies of him, he dies for us and he redeems us and he gives us a new inheritance. He also gives us a seat at his table. Right? It's a picture of the gospel. And so Mephibosheth realizes he has been first loved by the king and so he now loves the king. And when David went into exile, he wanted to go with him. But Ziba told a lie. Ziba deceived him. Ziba deceived David, prevented him from supporting David. And in the end, David takes all of the inheritance and gives it to Ziba. 
Gives it all his evil. But now David is confronted with the truth, and here's Mephibosheth. He, 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 his clothes are torn. He hasn't shaved. His feet are a mess. And David sees, here's a man who's been mourning. He's been longing for me to return. But what does David do? Does he say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have given all the inheritance to Ziba? Does he back it up? Does he, does he fix it? No, he just says, fine. Ziba, you take half. Mephibosheth, you take half. I'm done. He doesn't bring justice. David, when he does well, points to who Jesus is, right? But when he does poorly, he points to what Jesus definitely is not like. But look at Mephibosheth's attitude. I don't care about this stuff. I don't care about that. I just care that you got home safe. We'll get more into that more in, in a second. But the, the point of all that is that the lies of Aziba are rewarded while the truth of Mephibosheth uh, is penalized. Lies are rewarded and truth is penalized. Um, in verses 31 through 40, there's interaction with a man named Barzillai who helped Jesus, uh, or David, um, in, in, in his exile. And uh, David says, as he goes back to his kingdom, I want, I want you to come with me. I want you to have a place in Jerusalem. I want you to be a part of my kingdom. And Barzillai says, well, I'm, I'm old. Um, I'd like to just go home and rest up and then die and be buried with my my fathers. Now, this isn't a negative reaction. Barzillai isn't, shouldn't be seen as an opponent or an enemy of, of David. He was a help. He was a support. But there's something I want you to see about this. In Luke 9, uh, Jesus tells a young man, I want you to follow me. And, and the man's response to him is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, which was an excuse. And it was another way of saying, Lord, let me first go and live my life. Let me go first do what I want to do, and then with what's left over, I'll live it for you. And Jesus' response to him is, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the reality is, is there's some of us who are young, and we are looking at Jesus saying, Lord, let me go live my life, and then with what's left over, then I'll I'll praise you and worship you and and proclaim your kingdom. Some of us, however, are, are in a stage of life where we just want to take it easy and rest. And we think we've done our, our bit for king and country, and we just want to coast through the finish line. And, and I would ask you to, to remember that being a part of this kingdom, it doesn't end, right? Like, you, there, is, there, there is no part of, of coasting in this life. It doesn't matter how old you are, there is still a challenge for you. There's still a kingdom to be preached about and to, and to go and live for. Anyway, 2 Samuel 19 it concludes with the tribes of, of Israel fighting against the tribe of Judah. Uh, they, at first, they both backed Absalom, and now both of them are fighting against uh, each other. Judah is saying, David's our king. The other 11 tribes are saying, nope, he's our king. And so guess what's going to happen in the next chapter? More civil war. More mess. And so what's changed What's changed since, since 2 Samuel chapter 10? What, what's really changed? What's changed for Israel? What's changed for David? What's changed for his family? What's changed? The other thing I want us to, to, to transition and look at here is, is, is how, does, how does the reality of 2 Samuel 19 look like our own reality? That's a mess, just so you know. But our reality is a mess too. Think about it. In, in that chapter, we see a leader leading people to mourn over things that should be rejoiced over. To mourn over things that should be rejoiced over. Uh, you think about um, the, the world's response to the reversal of Roe versus Wade. What did world leaders say when that happened? Uh, Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, said, 
The news coming out of the United States is horrific. My heart goes out to the millions of American women who are now set to lose their legal right to an abortion. No government, politician, or man should tell a woman what she can and cannot do with her body. I want women in Canada to know that we will always stand up for your right to choose. Emmanuel Macron of of France tweeted, abortion is a fundamental right for all women. I wish to express my solidarity with women whose liberties are being undermined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Boris Johnson, a UK Prime Minister, or Johnson said, I think it's a big step backward. Leaders leading the world to mourn for something that should be rejoiced. To be clear, stopping the murder of millions of unborn babies is a thing to rejoice. And yet, our culture mourns it, or the idea of it. We also see that hate looks like love on the same issue. Antonia Senor wrote for the Times in an article entitled, Yes, Abortion is Killing, But It's the Lesser Evil. She writes this. The abortion issue hinges on the notion of life. The pro-life position is clear. A baby is life with rights from the instant of conception. The pro-choice position insists that we are talking only about a potential life with no rights. An embryo is not a person. Listen to this. What seems increasingly clear to me is that a fetus is a life by any subjective measure. My daughter was formed at conception. She is so unmistakably herself, her own person, forged in my womb, not by my mothering. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. Did you hear that? pro-choice individual recognizing life begins at conception and that in her own womb it was separate than her own life. However, she's about to contradict that. She says this, but you cannot separate women's rights from the right to fertility control. The single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on our biology. As ever, when an issue we thought was black and white becomes more nuanced, the answer lies in choosing the lesser evil. The nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil. No matter how you define it, how you define life or death for that matter, if you're willing to die for a cause, you must be prepared to kill for it too. Love or hate. Hatred towards the unborn expressed through love for women's rights. Hate looks like love. On the other side of that, though, love looks like hate. According to the Human Rights Campaign website, in an article called Get the Facts on Gender Affirming Care, it says this, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. I agree with that. But across the country, politicians desperate to gain power and their allies in the media are attacking the LGBTQ plus people and making it impossible particularly for transgender and non-binary youth to be their authentic selves. Um, It it links to another article that points to um, uh, a South Dakota state senator named uh, Fred Deutsch, who uh, he wrote a bill um, that failed, um, but the bill, if if it would have passed, it would have made it illegal to perform um, procedures to change a a child's gender for the age of of kids 16 and under. The, The bill failed. Here's essentially what's, what's being said. 
um, to tell a kid, um, you know, politics is really heavy. Like, it's, it's burdensome. You're not ready for that kind of stuff yet. You don't need to worry about that sort of stuff, so we're not gonna give you the right to vote, right? Let grow up first. Don't worry about that stuff, right? We'll, we'll, we'll tell a kid, you know what? The responsibility of alcohol and its consumption is not something you're prepared to handle yet, so you can't have this yet. Out of love for you, we're not going to give you this to you. We're, we're gonna tell our kids, no, I'm not gonna give you the keys to the car. I'm not gonna let you drive. This is a responsibility that you can't handle yet. You might get hurt or hurt somebody else. But we'll tell a kid that you can now have the right to choose, even though you're struggling with making everyday choices from which cereal you're gonna have or whatever you're gonna put on. We're gonna give you the right to choose, and it's a choice that's gonna have devastating circumstances for your mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical health that could traumatize you for the rest of your life, we're gonna let you have that responsibility. And that's love. It's like giving a child a loaded gun and saying, this is the loving thing to do. It's something they can't handle yet. That's not love, that's hate. But what it's being reframed as is that if a person should stand up and say, this isn't right, that's what's being called hate in our culture. Love looks like hate. Next, courage isn't seen as triumph. It even, isn't even seen as loss. It's seen as cowardice. Right now in, in our culture, there's a, a minority narrative that's being told as a majority narrative. And that, it comes out when we, we look at our police. The minority narrative is that there are a handful of really bad, evil individuals who have committed crimes against people of color and this is wrong and it's evil, but that minority narrative is the majority narrative. So that every police officer now is a racist monster. That's the, the, the narrative that's being taught in our culture. And so we've taken a career which was honorable, and, and now we've, we've said that it's no longer something that courageous people do, it's something that cowards do. There's something shameful about this, that even though in this country, hundreds of thousands of men and women get up every day and they put that uniform on and they go into places that you and I would not go into, and they put their lives on the line in ways that you and I would not do, for the weak and the powerless, and yet what their actions are called is not courage, it's called shameful. Courage isn't seen as, as triumph, it's not even seen as loss, it's seen as cowardice. Next, giving away the honor of our soldiers to your enemy. You think about the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. 20 years, men and women decided to go. And they served their country and they went to a place what, that, that outlawed the, uh, the ability for women to read, to fight against terrorism, but, but to build infrastructure, and there was hospitals, and there were schools, and, and there, was, there was some thriving that was happening in that country where, where people were gaining in rights, and, 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 and they fought for something, and all of a sudden, for overnight, for that to get turned over essentially to the Taliban, and within days, see it completely undone. Uh, the Brookings Institute published an article called Anger, Betrayal, and Humiliation, How Veterans Feel About the Withdrawal from Afghanistan. It points to a survey done by a group called uh, More in Common. It says this, Afghanistan veterans number 775,000, many with multiple tours of duty, 
They are angry about the withdrawal. 73% feel betrayed and 67% feel humiliated. The article states, two-thirds of all Americans and more than seven in 10 veterans believe that veterans of the war are going to have a hard time processing the end of the war. 76% of Afghanistan veterans say that they sometimes feel like a stranger in my own country. Overcoming the sense of estrangement would not be easy, especially because one-third of Americans report belonging to a social circles that include any of the veterans. Observers have worried about the consequences of a tiny fraction of a society doing the fighting for the rest of us. So far, anyway, the social impact of ending the Afghan war reinforces these fears. There's two things that are being said there. One, the humility of our government taking the work of 20 years and essentially handing it back to our enemy. Honor. Given away. The second thing it's saying, though, is that only one in every three people in this room probably have a relationship with one of those people who served. Therefore, those people are isolated and alone and they're dealing with this on their own. Next, uh, driving wedges. I'm sorry, got one more. People defiantly reject authority of leadership like Joab while at the same time asserting their own authority. Now, the illustration I'm about to give, the example I'm about to give, is two-sided. The example is that of Republicans. This happens also with Democrats, okay? It's on both sides of the aisle. I want to be clear about that. But the example is this. As you probably are aware, President Trump is facing trial for a variety of issues. One of those is uh, what he's done with sensitive documents. Now, a poll came out recently which said that polled Republicans and Democrats, but Republicans said this. The majority of Republicans said, even if he is proven guilty, that he should not be punished. Okay? I'm not, I want you to understand this. I'm not talking about his guilt or his innocence. It's not my place. I am not passing judgment on the court system's guilt or innocence. That's not my place. I want you to look at the heart of the people who responded to this, and essentially what they're saying is, it doesn't matter if he's guilty, he shouldn't be punished. However, the flip side of that is like 76% of Democrats said he should be punished to the full extent of the law. And you need to understand that if situations were reversed, everything would be reversed. Do you see this? People are willing to say, I'm okay if my leader is corrupt, he's my leader. I'm not okay with your leader being corrupt. Do you see? We, we don't mind someone being able to lead who's broken even the rules of government, to lead that government. This uh, leads us to the next point, driving wedges and polarizing people, as David did. To say that our country is divided, it goes without saying. We are so severely divided. Why are we divided? Because we continually choose to follow people who divide we continually choose to follow people who drive wedges. And that's not just politics, that's also the church. Anybody ever been through a church split? Next, wishy-washy loyalties. I think we'll see this as we always do in an election cycle. Wishy-washy loyalties, it's enough about politics. Last one, lies are rewarded and truth is penalized. If you don't believe this is happening, open your news book or your Facebook page. Scroll through social media. 
Do you, do you see the people who are holding up a false identity of themselves in order to get likes and comments and loves from people? Right? Essentially lying about who they are in order to, to receive love and they're rewarded. However, when you say anything that, that might be the least bit offensive, you get blasted even if it's true. Even if it's true. Now before we start pointing our fingers at what's happening out there in the world, we need to take a hard look at what's happening in here. Any of this reflect what's happening in here? What do we need to repent of? What needs to be changed here? Now I, I want us to, to end with hope. Because let's face it, 2 Samuel 19 is now full of hope. The reality is this, is for those people who are not in Christ Jesus, for those people who are adrift, for those people who have not embraced what Jesus has done for you, for those people who, who are not in Christ Jesus, this picture, this is the best it gets. This is the only heaven they'll ever know. However, if you are found in Christ Jesus, if you have reached out and taken what he has done for you, that you know that he is the God who took on flesh, who became a man, who lived the righteous life that you couldn't live, full of fidelity and full of truth and full of honesty, and that he took that life and he went to the cross and he offered it as a sacrifice in your place, and his sin came, or your sin came on him, and the wrath of God came on him so that you get to go free that you get to be forgiven, that if you are found in Christ Jesus because you've gone and embraced for, for yourself what he's done for you at the cross, that he is risen from the dead, that he is living and that he is seated on a throne and one day he's going to come back and reign and rule. If you are found in Christ, then this is the only hell you'll ever know. That should be hopeful, but it also should remind you that there's a whole world out there that if this is heaven, that's bleak and we need to change that. The thing about 2 Samuel 19 is there's a lot of parallels between the, the return of King David to his throne and the, the, the return of our King Jesus to him, to, to his throne here. There's parallels between the, David's return and the second return, but the parallels are seen in contrasts and the way that they're not like one another. When King Jesus returns, we won't see the kinds of attitude or behavior in him that we see in David or his people. We won't see a king who mourns the things that should be rejoiced over. We won't see a king whose hate is masked by love or whose love is masked by hate. We won't see a king who calls courage cowardice, who honors his enemy, who gives re the rebellious responsibility. Instead, we'll see a king who punishes evil and who gives righteousness to the humble. We'll see a different kind of king. But see, here's the thing. Do you long for that king? We take a look at Mephibosheth from the story. And here's Mephibosheth, and um, he, is, uh, he, he just cares about one thing, that David returns safely. He doesn't care about the inheritance. He says, give it away. I don't need it. Ziba can have it all. Essentially, what Mephibosheth says to David is, is I just want you. And there Mephibosheth is, he's, he's a visible sign of mourning from his feet to, the, to his beard to the way he's kept himself. He's, he's been mourning and longing for the safe return of his king. Now, I don't, meant to, I don't think that our time is meant to be, to be seen as, as necessarily one of mourning, but of, but of longing. Do you see the longing in Mephibosheth for, for his king? 
Do we long for Jesus to return? And I'm not just talking about a longing for his kingdom, which makes an end to all of this nonsense. I mean, I don't know about you, but I long for a day where I don't have to choose between the lesser of two evils on a, on a ballot. Like, I long for the day where, where goodness prevails all the time, everywhere, and that's the kingdom of God. And yes, we need to long for the kingdom of God, but, but more importantly, we need to long for the king. We need him. Is that, is that who we're longing for? See, the, the reality is, is if you begin to long for him, you'll begin to release this world. The more you long for him, the more you let go of this. To long for him means that, you know what, you can come back from a less than great vacation and still be okay. It means that, that you can go to the voting booth and vote your conscience, but regardless of, the, of what comes out, you'll still be okay. Like you could still be a voice of truth and love in your culture and, and reach out to people and, and knowing maybe they'll change and maybe they won't, but you'll still be okay because the reality is your hope is found in the return of the king. And that's all that matters. Now I'm saying, be clear, still take a vacation. Still go to the voting booth, still go to work, still engage in the culture. I'm not saying withdraw from it like a monk, but engage it knowing that your hope is found in the return of your king. Now, if you find yourself this morning saying, I don't really long for the return of the king. You can't long for somebody you don't spend time with. You can't long for somebody you haven't built a relationship with. You can't long for somebody you're not pursuing. You can't long for somebody that you don't know. Truth is, is Jesus wants you to know him. He's left four gospels to show himself to you. He's revealed himself to you through the Holy Spirit. There's a church body that's around you that wants you to know him more. Like there's ways to know him better and love him more. Are you pursuing him as much as he's pursuing you? So you need to love him in order to long for him. And here's the thing. Before you had the opportunity to love him, he first loved you. He first loved you. And that love is demonstrated in the gospel. Do you long for that king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness to us despite our wishy-washiness. Father, forgive us for the times that we have allowed this world to shape our hearts and minds to such an extent. For the ways in some ways we are being colonized by the world. Father, I pray that by your spirit that you would enable us to see what is true to cling to you, to put our hope in you. And Lord Jesus, help us to love you and pursue you. Help us to have that heart of Mephibosheth where we say, I just want you. Lord Jesus, help us to just want you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.